Welcome to Bumper Shoot. Thanks for coming to the Words and Ideas stage. As a courtesy to the performers, please turn off and put away all phones, cameras, and other recording devices. Patrons with active devices during the show may be asked to leave the venue. Please thank our stage sponsors, Seattle Public Library, the Seattle Times, and KUOW 94.9. And now please welcome to the stage, Stesha Brandon. Hi there. I'm Stasha Brandon. I'm the program director at Town Hall Seattle, and I'm so glad to see you inside on this gorgeous day. Um, for those of you that don't know about Town Hall, uh, we are a cultural venue that is on First Hill, and we are committed to making sure that ideas and culture are accessible for everybody. And, and to that end, most of our uh, lectures and such are just $5. And so that's um, something that we hold really um, dear to our hearts, and I'm delighted to be here at Bumbershoot to help share some of uh, our programming with you guys. We were so excited when um, the folks at, at Bumbershoot asked us to be a part of the Words and Ideas stage this year, and we've been here all weekend giving a little sneak peek of the programming that we do in arts and culture and in civics, and today we're finishing up our mini-series with a focus on science. And uh, here to interview neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, please help me welcome Town Hall's newest scholar in residence, Steve Scher. Hail, bumper shooters. Good to see you. By the way, uh, you know what this is? This is a very useful device for kind of offloading some of the things you really shouldn't have to think about so you have more time to daydream and to be creative, have more intuition. That's what Daniel Levitin's gonna talk about. That's what the organized mind is uh, all about. Can't remember your boyfriend's birthday, you can't remember your kids' names, you're wondering if you have, you know, if it's senility, Alzheimer's, you're wondering what it is, but I don't think it's any of those things, but I've forgotten. But, but what it is is that it's a crowded world, there's a lot of crowded information that kind of tries to find a way inside our heads. And this whole thing is pretty old, you know, not just mine, but all of ours, a few hundred thousand years and counting. And uh, the way it's learned to organize is pretty good, but there are some tools to help us organize a little better. Daniel Levitin, by the way, uh, before he started working in neuroscience, was, uh, he, he liked recording, so we have an affinity for that. He was four years old, he got his first... Uh, tape recorder, and uh, became an expert in sound and acoustics, and I think that, that brought him to the attention of uh, recording artists. He worked with Blue Oyster Cult. I think he performed some music with uh, Bobby McFerrin, if I'm not right. If I'm not correct. I think that's right. Uh, he was an A&R guy for record companies, and then somewhere in there, uh, the allure of cognitive neuroscience called him. So join me in welcoming Daniel Levitin. Thank you all for coming. I thought I'd just talk for a few minutes about uh, a couple of ideas in the book. Uh, and then Steve would come back out and uh, we'd have a conversation and then uh, maybe take some questions if that's all right with you. Does that sound all right? So um, to begin with, uh, you heard about information overload. Um, and. Uh, Maybe we're all feeling a little bit more overwhelmed than we used to. 
Uh, are there any data on this? Are there any studies? Uh, are there any numbers we can look at? Well, there are. Uh, in 2011, the most recent year for which I was able to find figures, Americans took in on average five times as, as much information as we did in 1986. Five times as much information. That's the equivalent of reading 174 newspapers every single day, cover to cover. In your leisure time alone, if you're like most Americans, you process 34 gigabytes of data. Uh, and if you're feeling like you can't keep up, uh, maybe you figure, well, at the very least, you can keep up with what's happening on YouTube. So you'll watch YouTube videos now and then. But what you should know is that every hour, YouTube uploads 6,000 hours of new video. So what that means is for each hour you watch YouTube videos, you're already falling 5,999 hours behind. You couldn't possibly keep up. We've created a world that has 300 exabytes of human-made information. If you don't know what an exabyte is, don't feel bad. I didn't either. I had to look it up. It's a, it's, that's 300 with 18 zeros after it. That's how much human-made information there is. By some estimates, we've created just in the scientific domain, forget about all the other stuff like uh, all the information that the credit agencies have in, on you and all the click traffic that Google's been following, all of the information that's encoded in that narrow stripe on the back of your credit cards, forgetting all that, just looking at scientific information, by some estimates, we've created more in the last 25 years than in all of human history before it. So no wonder you're feeling overwhelmed. It's an enormous amount of information. Uh, and as, you, uh, as Steve said, it's, it's probably not the case that um, you're battling cognitive decline or uh, that you're forgetful because of some neurological disorder. You're forgetful because the human brain didn't evolve in a world where that was, that it was necessary to keep track of all that much information. Uh, the human brain, as, as we have it now, basically evolved to deal with life as it was for thousands of years. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, we lived in smallish groups. You might live your whole life and not see more than 200 people. Uh, you know, walking down downtown Seattle now, in a couple hours, you'll run into 1,000 people. Uh, you knew the same people your whole life. Uh, the kinds of data that were generated came in slowly. Uh, not at all the world we have today. Uh, and the brain can basically pay attention to just a handful of things at once. This touches on something that we all do called multitasking. Uh, so one of the ways that we try to cope with information overload is to do a whole bunch of things at once. Uh, and it turns out there are a lot of studies now, just in the last 10 or 15 years, about the effectiveness of, of multitasking. And Overwhelmingly, the conclusion is there's no such thing as multitasking. You think you're doing it, but you're not. Uh, what the brain is actually doing is sequential tasking or unitasking. You're switching rapidly from one idea or one topic or one task to another, maybe in little five-second increments or one-second increments, shifting rapidly between them. The brain isn't configured to do all these things at once. It's not any good at it. And, uh, an enormous number of studies, both on the neuroscience side and on the behavioral side, show that it's a myth. So why is it that we think we're so good at it? 
Well, it's an illusion. And as a neuroscientist, I can tell you, one of the things the brain is super good at is deceiving itself. <laughs> the brain is a wonderful self-deceiver. I mean, you probably all know this. I mean, I, I experience it in my own life. I tend to think that I'm a lot more funny after I've been drinking heavily. <laughs> uh, but I'm told that's not true by the people around me. So we, we self-deceive all the time. You think you can drive better after you've been drinking too, by the way. Uh, I mean, that's, that's science. That's been shown. People's confidence goes up and when their abilities go down often. So um, there's, there's that part that we're self-deceiving. Um, the other thing about multitasking is that uh, if, if you look at the data from experiments, people who are allowed to multitask versus people who are not in the workplace. At the end of the day, the multitaskers really feel that they got a lot more done, but there's no evidence for it. In fact, they got less done and their work was less creative. Multitasking lowers your effective IQ by approximately 10 points, uh, and it's equivalent to smoking a big joint. <laughs> uh, not that there's anything wrong with smoking a big joint, but if you're at work and you're trying to focus on your tasks and you want to be at your peak, uh, multitasking's not the way to do it. So you end up not uh, saving time, really, but wasting time. Uh, so what can you do about it? Well, one thing you can do is try to accept the data, accept the research as true, and unitask. Try to do one thing at a time. And if you say, well, I can't afford to do that because I'll fall too far behind. My job is so stressful. I've got a, or my home life, the things I'm, uh, whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a hobby, whether it's leisure time, we all feel as though we don't have enough time. So we, we try to work nonstop on several things at once. But try it. Just try unitasking and you'll see uh, that your productivity increases and you feel more relaxed. Multitasking releases the stress hormone cortisol, which puts you all on edge and fogs your thinking. And I'm sure you've all had the experience that after two or three hours of multitasking, you just feel like your head is really fogged and you're not, you don't have any mental clarity. Um, the other thing that's important is to take breaks. Uh, we're not a culture that really uh, values them as much as we used to, but again, why not look at the data? There are a number of studies that I cite in the book that show conclusively uh, people who are allowed to take breaks during the day get more done, more than making up for the amount of time they spent on their breaks. Uh, we can take a lesson from people who multitask for a living or you know, think they're multitasking, uh, air traffic controllers. Uh, air traffic controlling is a very stressful job. If you get you know, one thing wrong, it could be a disaster. A similar job that's similarly stressful is simultaneous translator at the UN. You get one word wrong, <laughs> and there could be a war. And it's interesting that with these two jobs, they're mandated to take breaks. They're not allowed to work for more than about an hour at a time, and then they're required to take 15 or 30 minute breaks. And these aren't breaks of you know, checking their email or uh, tweeting or, you know, wandering around the blogosphere. The breaks actually they're required to take are to go for a walk or get some exercise, um, read a book, just get their mind off what it was they were doing and get into another mode, the daydreaming mode, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but the idea here is that if you take breaks, say, 10 or 15 minutes every couple of hours, it allows you to sustain focus and concentration. 
and to effectively hit the reset button in your brain during those breaks to uh, recharge the depleted neurochemicals that were used up in staying on a task. Uh, and it really does work. A nap, even a 10 or 15 minute nap during the day, in some studies has been shown to be equivalent to an extra hour and a half sleep at night. It's that recharging. Uh, so those are basically the big ideas uh, that I wanted to lead off with, and I'd like to invite Steve back out to uh, continue the conversation. You were multitasking just then, I see. There's a lot. A lot of things to think about in this book, but let me, since I'm going to come back to that question of you know, intuition and the like, but what do you think about this as a tool for, what was the phrase you used? Shift the burden of organizing from our brains to the external world so there's more time to daydream, heat intuition, inspiration. You sort of told us why that's important, but uh, is that what this can do? You know, uh, that thing that you pulled out of your pocket has more computational power than Apollo mission control had in an entire room full of equipment. And we've effectively outsourced to Google a number of tasks that used to take research tasks that took anywhere from minutes to months. I mean, if you wanted to look up a certain fact or find something out 20 years ago, you might have had to call somebody on the phone and ask them or go to a library or visit some archive somewhere. And once you got to the library, you know, you didn't just walk up to the desk and get the answer, right? I mean, this could be a laborious process and virtually anything that's known now in the world is on the internet somewhere and it's available to you in a half a second. So, um, on the other hand, uh, if you're texting while you're driving, uh, I mean, just to look at both sides of this, you remember the, the uh, if by whiskey speech? No. It was a wonderful speech that was given on the floor of the Mississippi State Legislature uh, where the politician was, uh, Mississippi still had prohibition in the early 50s. and. Uh, politician was on the Senate, uh, state Senate floor talking about the pros and cons of whiskey. And it makes me think about how there's two sides to everything. Uh, he starts out by saying, if by whiskey you mean the scourge of society, that uh, evil liquor that uh, you know, causes grown men and women to become dependent upon uh, the government, that causes them to lose track of their responsibilities, that ends in defeat and calamity that you know, puts people in the gutter. He says, by, if that's what you mean by whiskey, I'm against it. He says, that, but if by whiskey you mean the elixir of conversation, <laughs> <laughs> that, that warm oil that liquefies a great experience between people, the uh, liquor that puts the bounce in the step of the old man on a frosty winter morning, <laughs> Uh, he's much more eloquent, and he goes on and on, but the idea is, you know, if, if that's what you mean by whiskey, I'm for it. And the, the if by whiskey thing reminds me of the phone, because, um, you know, we can, just like any technology, we can use it in ways that aren't in our own best interests. Well, you, uh, you talk about the need to take control. I mean, why, why did you call this book The Organized Mind? In part because you were thinking about 
how we could be more organized with these tools? Yeah, so, uh, well, uh, I thought that, I guess I could have called it the organized world or organizing your world. It's, it's an interesting question how you title a book. Uh, <laughs> it took me months to come up with the right the title that I thought was right. I mean, you have to judge whether you thought it was right. I wanted to talk about the brain. I'll tell you what I wanted to talk about. You tell me if you think the title works. I, I realized that neuroscientists had learned a whole lot in the last 15 years about how the brain works, uh, why we pay attention to some things, and how, why we forget other things. And there's a... a a knowledge there that hasn't really trickled down to the average person that I think all of us can use in our daily lives to better organize our homes, our workplaces, our decision-making, to better organize our time, with the end goal being that by being slightly better organized, and I'm not talking about spending two weeks at the container store picking out exactly the right product uh, and then spending another two months, you know, phoning in sick at work and getting all all your closets reorganized. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about little things we can do in an hour. You said that was very specific. <laughs> <laughs> little things we can do in an hour that give us more time. Uh, more time to be creative and spontaneous and to spend with loved ones and uh, to do the things we really like doing and, and to be more productive at work so that we don't feel like we're behind all the time. We'll talk about some of the things that we have learned that neuroscience has learned about the brain. Um, in terms of cognition, you talk about the, we categorize. And the first categorization was me and not me. What, what were the next early ones? So I was, I was interested, when I, when I first started writing the book, I wanted to know how our primitive ancestors organized their world uh, and what kinds of distinctions they made. And it appears from the literature, I mean, we don't really know until uh, we get the Wayback Machine running, uh, or we get Stewie Griffin's time machine. Uh, we don't really know, but it appears as though the first distinctions that people made were between self and other, uh, and then probably between living and dead, or human and non-human, and then categorization grew to be increasingly elaborate, uh, edible and non-edible, and then among the edible things, edible things that move and that you have to chase, uh, edible things that might chase you, and then you become edible. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, you, you, what was the most primitive, well, most languages begin with uh, just three categories of other, and one of them is wugs, yeah. which was everything that creeps and crawls. And Yeah, so there's this fun, con you know, the, the book was partly an opportunity for me to, uh, I guess, convey some of the, f what I think are the most fascinating and the funnest ideas in contemporary cognitive science. And one of them is that there's, uh, in the thousands of languages that have been studied and that are spoken all over the world, many of these languages are spoken by still pre-literate societies. And uh, terms emerge in a language, languages don't develop, don't, don't appear fully formed with hundreds of thousands of words. They grow over time as the speakers of those languages need to be able to make certain distinctions, categorize things. So. Uh, some languages only have two words for color. Uh, and the, so then the question is, well, what do those map onto? Is one red and the other blue? Well, no. All of the colors that we see, they still see. It's just that they have one, one word for all of the 
light, the light, light colors color. and one word for all of the dark colors. Um, we do kind of the same thing. Um, we can distinguish all kinds of oranges, but you don't really, a lot of names for different kinds of reds, like scarlet and crimson and maroon, but there aren't that many words for a lot of different oranges or a lot of different yellows. It was interesting that red was the third in the, in the, uh, in the evolution of distinction of color, huh? Right, so if, if you're looking at the progression of languages, if they have two terms for color, they'll map onto light and dark. If they have three terms, the third term they introduce is red. If they have four terms, it'll either be blue or green. If they have five terms, it'll be the one that they didn't add from the blue or green. And the same thing's true of, of how uh, languages divide up uh, the animal and plant kingdom. So you mentioned wugs. Uh, generally, if they have two terms for animals, it'll be something that maps onto humans and then everything else. And then if they add a third term, it's usually something for creepy crawly things that you wouldn't want in your food. Uh, and um, they include worms and bugs. So uh, anthropologists collectively call that category wugs. So what's happening in the brain? Why is the brain creating these categories? And, and what, what is happening inside the structure of the brain? You ask really interesting questions. Well, it's your book. <laughs> you, you raised them all. <laughs> um, what is happening in the brain is, um, I would call it cognitive economy. Huh. Um, if you had to think of it this way, if every grain of sand on the beach was not just perceptually distinct, but conceptually distinct, and you didn't see the relationship between one and any of the others, they were all unique independent entities that had nothing to do with one another, it would be overwhelming perceptually and you wouldn't know what to do with, with them. Or, I mean, to take a more um, immediate example, uh, if all the beans on your plate were distinct entities uh, and had to be treated as though each one was unique and different and you had to evaluate each one independently before you put it in your mouth, you wouldn't, you'd never eat, you'd starve. So uh, the brain has this tendency for what I call cognitive economy uh, to be economical uh, um, and efficient to lump things together that are similar. So we lump together all the beans. You know, you, if, if somebody asked you to scrutinize them, if, if, if you came along and you said, oh, you know, before you eat those beans, I want you to divide them in half and put the largest ones on this side of your plate and the smallest ones on that side of your plate, I, you know, anybody could do that. Or you could say, um, uh, put the malshapen ones, the kind of odd, you know. You know you, it's not that they're perceptually indistinct, it's that we treat them as the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So we're, are we, we're shifting a little bit in our focus from, uh, from, the, from the individual to the collective. Our brain is actually, how is our brain able to do that? That's sort of very fuzzy in a way to make that distinction, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, the brain's able to operate at multiple hierarchical levels. So um, I could ask if, you know, let's, let's take uh, our, our audience. Uh, just look up here at the stage and don't look at anything in particular. Uh, and now I could ask you uh, to look at the curtain behind me. And now I could ask you to focus at the ripples in the curtain. And now I could ask you to focus on a little spot over there. Uh, and you're dealing with all different levels of resolution. Uh, and then you can go back and just take in the whole scene at once. Uh, this is something that, as far as we know, all mammals can do this shifting across levels, and it's actually necessary. Why? 
Well, um, it's necessary to see the big picture of the small picture. Uh, if, if you're seeing only the tree and you don't see the forest, it would be hard to get out of the forest. Yeah. So our brain, we, so is that why we evolved it, with that ability? So that we could distinguish not just what was edible, but what was dangerous? Navigation, uh, danger, uh, finding mates, uh, finding food. Is there a neurochemical component to these categories? I mean, do they form somewhere in the brain? Categories do form in a particular place in the brain, uh, we think. Um, I don't know of a neurochemical that is specifically and uniquely involved with category formation. Um, this, is, this is all ongoing research, and I think in another five or ten years we'll have a clearer picture of that. Uh, but uh, in terms of the specific parts of the brain, there have been some interesting findings. So um, based on work that uh, was done in part by Mike Posner, former UW graduate now at the University of Oregon. Oh, yeah. uh, Go ducks. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that here? Yeah. I'm, I'm both a duck and a husky, so I can, I can say that. Uh, we know that uh, category representations in the brain occupy particular pieces of neural real estate. So, for example, uh, there's a part of the brain where all the fruits and vegetables are kept. Really? Your, your notion of them, your, everything you know about them, it seems. And another part where um, meat, and another part for animals, and another part for tools. And one of the pieces of evidence for this is that uh, a lesion or some uh, uh, stroke or you know, any kind of an insult to that part of the brain, you can lose an entire category all at once. Really? But, but isn't the brain always making new connections? And don't, don't these ideas of categories and, 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 the, and the more specific parts of them uh, exist in, a, in the connections between these different parts of the brain? Yes, yeah, so that's why I say we think that they're stored in a particular part of the brain. It's, we're increasingly beginning to think the last time you and I spoke, uh, it, the, I think the consensus among cognitive neuroscientists was that brain localization is um, well understood and certain kinds of ideas are in certain parts of the brain or certain kinds of processes. Learning to ride a bike is in a certain part of the brain. Learning to play the piano is in another part. Uh, learning a foreign language is in another part. Mm. We're increasingly in the last few years appreciating that Maybe localization isn't the right description. There are networks, connections, as you say. Sebastian Sung, by the way, my colleague at MIT, has a wonderful book called Connectome, which I think is the best introduction to neuroscience I've ever read. And he's talking about connectome. It's a, a term that was coined to be like the genome. But the idea is that all the knowledge that you possess in your brain is contained in the connections, the connectome, just as in all the instructions for building your body are in the genome. You know, you touch on that a little bit, and I do have a question about that. Is this, is this a metaphor for the modern times? Is that, in other words, we are now in an electronic age, a digital age, so when we conceptualize the brain, that's the paradigm we operate with? You mean the connection paradigm? Yeah. Well, it's a neural network you're talking about. Yeah. Right? Um, are you asking if... Well, a, hunt, a, a thousand years ago there were people trying to figure out how the brain worked. They had different metaphors, yes? They did. They, they, in Descartes' time, uh, not even a thousand years ago, uh, they thought of, of the brain and the body as mechanisms because they built these little mechanical, uh, water-driven uh, 
humanoids, you know, me mechanistic devices. So they thought of things in terms of reflexes. So, right, our, our understanding is limited by the metaphors and analogies we're able to employ, uh, and our understanding is limited by the science, and it's, it's growing all the time. We may throw all this out. Um, to get back to the phone uh, idea um, that you, you started our conversation with, uh, I was just been thinking, uh, you talked about how we externalize to the phone um, I think humans have been trying to uh, come up with ways to enhance their brains from the beginning of time. Uh, you, you, call, you might call them cognitive enhancers or, um, you know, brain gain, brain gain devices. And I think written language was one of those first cognitive extenders, and glasses are, and hearing aids, and, and cell phones are brain extenders to the extent that you put stuff in your calendar or that you don't have to remember somebody's phone number anymore. Remember when you used to have to remember phone numbers? Uh, the problem is that um, there's a limited number of things the brain can deal with at a time. And so if you're trying to keep track of somebody's phone number and you're trying to remember to bring the laundry in and pick up some milk on the way home and bring your umbrella because it's gonna rain, of course it's gonna rain at Seattle, um, and you, you've got to remember to call so-and-so, and oh, I, I forgot to respond to this email. All that stuff is competing with limited neural resources for the things you're really trying to do in your life, whether it's jet ski or um, uh, you know, learn to play a new song on the piano or, or do whatever it is you do for a living. What, what is the attentional system? So the, the brain has, has uh, four attentional systems. Uh, and the two that uh, I'm most interested in, because we spend most of our time in these two, are the, um, there's actually three, four attentional components, three systems, so I'll, I'll unpack it. Uh, there, and, you know, neuroscientists have these rather inelegant jargony names like task positive network and task negative network, which don't really mean much, right? right. So, uh, there's one mode that I think you all recognize. When you're actively engaged in a task, you're not distracted, you're focused on it, and that feels different than when you're distracted. And I mean, this might be when you're reading, and it might be when you're writing a report, or you're, you're doing something at work that requires your particular skills, you're focusing, you're not distracted. That's uh, called what we call the central executive mode. Uh, we call it the central executive because it's having, you know, most tasks require that you don't do just one thing, but you draw on different resources or skills that you have. Uh, most meaningful tasks require this. Um, but then every once in a while, you find that you're not really paying attention. You kind of drift off. Uh, it could happen when you're reading. Has this ever happened to you where you're reading a book and at some point you realize your eyes have gotten ahead of your brain? Yeah. And... Your, your eyes were certainly tracking the words, but you have no idea what they mean or how they relate to what you read before. That's this second mode. It's the mind-wandering mode. And it's a wonderful place to be. Uh, it's, it's where many of our most creative activities occur. It's also important for uh, memory consolidation. Uh, the way that you remember what happened during the day is that while you're asleep during certain stages of your sleep, your brain is going over all the activities of the day, trying to make connections between them and one another, between them and the other things that happen during the day. It pre-processes them for memory storage so that you have access to them later. 
But especially in the last 20 years with information overload, uh, by the time nighttime comes around, we've taken in too much and not done enough pre-processing and you get a bottleneck. So if you take time to daydream and just let your mind turn over the different thoughts and experiences you've had, um, that does a lot of the pre-processing for you. So there's that daydreaming mode, which is really important. If you try to get all caffeined up and stay on task and just work, 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 and you don't let the daydreaming happen, you end up with diminishing returns. Uh, you want to hear about the other two? Yeah, yeah. So third attentional uh, part of the attentional system is called the attentional filter. And you're familiar with this too. All of you know these things. You just haven't heard them described in terms of brain systems probably. Maybe some of you have. But uh, the attentional filter is this part that's uh, called a saliency network or a vigilance network. It's what's constantly monitoring the environment uh, to alert you and pull you out of whatever you're doing, out of your daydreaming reverie or out of your work central executive mode if there's a sudden reason to. So if um, if there's a loud noise, all of a sudden, it wasn't very loud, if there's a loud noise, all of a sudden it, it kind of, it pulls you out. If there's a flash of light, uh, if you're in a, a room and you hear your name called or you hear a, a, a salient word like fire or sex, it captures your attention. Th think about when you, if maybe you've been in a crowded room at a party and you're carrying on a conversation with somebody near you and everything else is just a buzz, but from the far side of the room you suddenly hear your name called. Well, how did that get through and nothing else did? Well, your saliency network, which is monitoring everything, captured it and brought it to you. That's like the, the, NS, the NSA of our minds. I mean, that's a remarkable idea. Nicely put, yeah. It's, it's remarkable that there is this cognition going on yes. in my brain. And it does so without a warrant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, you, you use the, uh, also the um, example of when you're driving and maybe you nod off and all of a sudden you wake up. I mean, yeah. it, that's, that's just, I don't know, it's just a remarkable idea. Yeah, it, it's, well, it, I mean, it, it makes evolutionary sense, right? Uh, you need to know uh, if there's a tiger about to pounce. Uh, I, the, I mean, the, it, it's probably, uh, I don't need to belabor the point with this group, but our ancestors who didn't have a saliency network probably didn't live long enough to reproduce because yeah. they would have been carried off by some predator. Yeah, they were busy sorting the individual beans. Right, that's it. So <laughs> our ancestors who did, uh, I'm obviously using the ans word ancestors wrongly here because our ancient humans who didn't survive were not our ancestors. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, what about the neural switchboard? That's the final component? Right, so there's a switch. Uh, my colleague Vinod Menon and I uh, believe that, uh, that it's in the insula. We've published some papers on this. That's, if you put your finger right here on the top of your head and you went down an inch... That's the insula, and that seems to be the switch that takes you between these diff three different modes. Uh, so we located the switch. The switch is part of a network, uh, but the, the actual switching appears to occur in the insula. And the switching itself is metabolically costly. Uh, neurons are living cells with a metabolism. They require glucose in order to function. The more work they have to do, the more glucose they use up. It was plain old ordinary glucose, like what you have in cane sugar uh, and corn syrup and um, donuts. Uh, and so if that switch is called upon to switch too rapidly or too much, 
If you feel depleted, it's because you've literally depleted the glucose in your brain. So take the time when you're in the essential executive mode to be in that mode when you're mind wandering, when you're daydreaming, be in those modes because otherwise if you're right. multitasking the idea of switching yeah. back and forth, you're just wearing yourself out. That's what we think. And how do you, how do you replenish the glucose? Um, you get into the daydreaming mode. That seems to do it. It's able to recruit new glucose resources. Or you eat. Uh, and you can eat sugar, but... You know, there are other hazards with that. I'm not recommending that you just go out and binge on sugar. But eventually, anything you eat, the body is able to turn into sugars. Um, you, you had this interesting notion, and, and it fits with this. What is our brain doing in terms of all this processing? What's our brain doing when we approach a door? Do you remember how you talked about yeah. how... Yeah, so this is another... I, I, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, this really ties things together nicely with our talk about externalizing. So as a general rule, uh, if you want to take the advice of, of neuroscientists, uh, you try to keep useless stuff out of your head, useless information, and externalize it to the environment. And the reason you want to do it is because then that, that frees up neural resources for you to be more fully engaged with work, or with play, with daydreaming, with leisure time, with all these other things. Externalizing means keeping phone numbers in a phone, keeping uh, important dates on a calendar, things like when medical appointments are, when you have to pay a certain bill. And we see it in the environment uh, in the way that uh, certain things are designed. So the door to this building, and in fact in most public buildings uh, where there's a lot of people in a small, relatively small area, the, the door is designed to tell you how it needs to be opened in the event of emergency without you having to memorize anything or um, without you having to be told explicitly. It's got a little horizontal bar on it that, that you, you couldn't pull it if you wanted to. The horizontal bar is the environment telling you if you want to get out of this door, you've got to push. And on the well-designed ones, the bar is constructed in such a way that you even know which side of it you're supposed to push on. It's not just a uniform bar all the way across, although you've probably seen a lot of doors like that, but it'll have a thicker area or an area with a visible hinge on one side so that you know you're supposed to push there. You're externalizing what you need to know. Likewise, on, uh, on uh, commercial and industrial and government buildings, if there's a big loop made out of metal, that's telling you you have to pull on it. And of course, designers don't always, and co contractors sometimes violate this. Um, you've, we've all encountered the, the door with the handle and you pull it and you're supposed to push it, uh, but. That's the category, categorization again, right? Our brain is learning patterns. Yeah. And we have learned those patterns to, over time to evolve. I would be willing to bet though that even somebody who'd never seen one of those doors would figure it out. Because, because the information's externalized there. It, it, it's what the psychologist J.J. Gibson called an affordance. It affords how to use it. So, um, you know, like a coffee mug with a little hook. Nobody needs, you know, a little loop. Nobody needs to tell you to put your finger in there. It just, it affords the usage. It's putting that information in the environment. For humans. For humans. And some yeah. monkeys. And some monkeys. And raccoons, I guess. I yeah. mean, some, some other creatures do have that right. same ability, right? Right. They understand the affordance. Raccoons in my neighborhood really understand the affordance of the garbage can lid. Yeah. And the screen door. Yeah. It says something about consciousness, doesn't it? Yeah. Which uh, I just thought I'd throw that out there to ask you that. I mean, you grapple with a little bit, so what is it when, in looking at the brain and looking at how it works? 
How would you define consciousness? That's a really... Um, I know it's like a whole treatise, but I mean, you do yeah, touch a, on it a bit. It's a, yeah, I'm interested in it. Um, it's a tricky question. Um, there was a great book written by Dan Dennett in 1991 called Consciousness Explained, uh, which raises a lot of uh, issues about what we know about consciousness and unconscious processes. And I've come to believe, uh, based on my own reading of the literature, that consciousness is not um, a state that alternates with non-consciousness. Rather, I see it as a continuum. It's not a binary thing. Uh, in other words, uh, it's not like there's a switch and one minute you're conscious and the next minute you're unconscious, or even that there's a, I don't know, a switch with three positions where you're conscious kind of falling to sleep and then, un I, I don't think it works that way. Um, it falls along a continuum uh, and one piece of evidence of that is that we now believe that certain parts of your brain can be asleep while you're otherwise perfectly awake. Really? Yeah. So uh, there's ample evidence from neuroimaging studies and other techniques, uh, EEG, that um, your brain, uh, you know, certain parts will just shut down and you're not aware of it because you're not using them. And when you go to, go to use them, you realize that they're not quite online and they have to, you know, it's like sometimes when you're looking for a word and you can't find it, that's what happened. And literally asleep, I mean, it is in that mode where it is resting it, it, and recuperating. Indistinguishable in terms of brainwave patterns from when you're actually you know, asleep in the middle of the night, yeah. Wow, so, so it's, not, it's not about how much of the brain we're using as humans, but how much of it is asleep at any one time. Yeah, and, and of course, when you talk about consciousness, uh, you're talking, I think, usually about awareness. To say that you're conscious means that you're aware. But there are a lot of demonstrations now, Dennett and others write about them, where uh, you think you're perfectly aware of what's going on and you're not. Have you all seen the gorilla video? So for those of you who haven't, uh, just Google gorilla video and watch it and follow the instructions. And I won't ruin it, but for those of you who have, you know that um, the, um, the fact that you, th you think you're aware of things just like you know, with that earlier self-delusion, doesn't mean that you really are aware of everything that's going on. That also, that experiment is also about how much information we can take in at any yes. one time. Yes. Yes. There's okay. a processing limit capacity. And we that and that is physical. Yes, biological, as far as we biological, know. Biological. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said you used a phrase. Um, uh, you used the phrase memory storage. What is in the brain again? What is memory storage? All these things are evolving. Um, it, you know, when I talked about concepts or categories being in a certain part of the brain, it seems, uh, it, there's contradictory information about how memories are stored, contradictory data. So there are studies that show that if, if you stimulate a certain part of the brain uh, with a tiny electrical charge, you can evoke a certain memory from the person. And if you come back and you stimulate that same region later, you get the same memory. So that might suggest to you the memory is right there. Um, the problem is that, two problems. One is um, you got no way of knowing whether what the person started telling you was an actual memory or fabrication. They may think it was a memory, but it could be self-deception. And the other thing is you don't really know that the memory was there. You just know that poking there caused them to recall the memory. Uh, it's like, you know, it's like um, 
there's a long wire between that lamp there and the electrical box. And if somebody unplugs it and I can introduce electricity in thousands of places along the line, I can still make the light light up. But the place where I put the electricity doesn't mean that that's where the light is or that that's where the electricity is. I mean, it's, it's a, a system and a network. So um, does that make sense? Yes. So uh, one way to think about memory is when you experience something, a piece of music, um, a sunset, uh, the taste of a warm chocolate pudding, um, these rich and unique experiences are delivered to your consciousness uh, by your sensory receptors and by a particular configuration of neurons um, that are distinguishable and separate from other configurations. So the warm chocolate pudding feels and tastes different from a cold chocolate pudding, which feels and tastes different from a warm or a cold vanilla pudding. So you're talking about different neurons that are representing this to you and delivering it to you. And what many of us now think happens when you uh, recall that experience is that it's a process of getting all those neurons that were originally evolved in giving you the experience, getting as many of them as possible online again in as close to the original configuration as possible, and then you're reliving the experience as a memory. Hmm. So as we age and different parts of the brain disappear, that's why memories uh, become either fragmented or maybe lit up with others? There's that, and there's the fact that as we put more memories into the system, uh, you can reach a bottleneck as you try to pull them out. So often cases of forgetting aren't that we don't have the thing in there, it's that it's competing with many other things. So if I say to you, what did you have for breakfast three Wednesdays ago? Could you answer that? Yeah. Oh, Only you could? because it's been very regular for oh, the okay. last few while. Well, there are, yeah, there's some people who have exactly the same breakfast every morning, yeah. right? But, uh, okay, what did you have it's for dinner? It's been nil. <laughs> no breakfast. What did you have for dinner three Wednesdays yeah, ago? No, no, way. no idea, right? Because all the days and the meals seem to, you know, mix together in your memory. If only you could find some unique cue. Well, what if I told you, well, three Wednesdays ago, that's the day that you met your old college friend at this particular restaurant, and for the first time in 20 years, he picked up the tab. <laughs> now you're going to remember, right? Because you've got a retrieval cue to that memory that marks it as separate from all the other memories. Huh. Or if I said to you, when's the last time you had roast beef at a restaurant? And you say, oh, oh, three Wednesdays ago. Sure, because right. it would be very specific. Right. And, it has more, and there's one more little key that's right. lit up. Right, right. Interesting. Um, I want to get some questions from you folks, and you'll have to shout, and then I will repeat them. So you'll raise your hand. But just one thing. How did you take the journey, Daniel Levitin, from being a little kid who liked recording things to becoming an expert in acoustics to the point where you worked in music and, and, that, and then ended up as a neuroscientist? What was the, what was the cognitive <laughs> trip you took? Um, well... I dropped out of college uh, after my f sophomore year because I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a great electric guitar player. Uh -huh. And um, I learned a number of things. Um, I, I, I've had an interesting life and I've done a whole bunch of things but I didn't plan on any one of them. Things just sort of happened and they didn't happen the way that I planned for them to. 
So after dropping out, uh, I, I studied the guitar and I became as good as I could get. And I auditioned for rock bands and nobody would have me and I was hired by a country band, or I was offered a job in a country band. And I thought, I, I, don't, I don't wanna do this. I, I wanna be a rock guitar player. And my father said, don't be so arrogant. He said, do you think you have nothing to learn from these people? I mean, they were, they were a band on the Oregon coast, the Alsea River Band. And they had a whole bunch of gigs lined up, and they were a professional going concern. They had their own tunes. They had a built-in audience. My dad said, you've never been in a band before. You know, just, you, you might learn something from these people and see how it goes. And that, being flexible was great advice when uh, I decided to leave that band and move down to California and try to join a rock band. I auditioned for a bunch of bands, and the very best band that I auditioned for offered me a job, but not as a guitar player, as a bass player. And I said, I don't play the bass. And they said, yeah, well, yeah, we know, but we auditioned bass players for six months and we couldn't find anybody who was melodic enough. We figured if we could find a lead guitar player who was melodic that we liked, then we could get that person to switch to bass. So I called my father again and I was really distraught and he again told me to be flexible and said, you know, um, do you really think that you, there's nothing you can learn from these people and, and you know, maybe it's better to be the bass player in a great band that's going places than you know, the lead guitar player in a lesser band? And each, each thing that's happened, it was a matter of me wanting to do one thing but some other opportunity coming up. So um, just to make this long story short. Well, you're also tying it back into what you're talking about in your, in your book about flexibility in the brain. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for that. That was generous. Uh, <laughs> um, I, um, I went into recording because um, I wasn't having luck with the bands I was playing in. Each of us kept collapsing under the collective weight of our own incompetence. Uh, <laughs> at mine, mostly. Uh, so, of course, I, I did what any, any person would do. I, I took another job that I wasn't qualified for, and I became a record producer. Uh, and when that didn't work out, I became a record company founder. Uh, and after we sold our record company to Sony, I thought that it was time to go back to school and get my bachelor's degree when I was 35. And um, I, I got interested in neuroscience, and it was Mike Posner who suggested that I combine neuroscience and music. Uh, but I also knew that... Uh, I had learned in the record business and in being in music that if you want to do well, you can't just know one thing. I learned that from being in a country band. It actually hmm. it made me a better rock player that I had learned country. And once I figured that out, I started learning jazz and hip hop and R&B and all these other things because they, it gives you a bigger perspective. And when I was at the record company, I paid a lot of attention to what other record companies were doing. So when I went into psychology and neuroscience, I made it a point to learn as broadly as I could about everything that was happening in the field because you never know what kind of job you're going to be offered or where you'll end up. So I was always interested in how the brain organizes information uh, from the time I was a kid. And that, that, not, that, that curiosity got channeled in graduate school. It's when I went to set up a lab that uh, Mike Posner, my doctoral advisor, said, you know, you should set up a music and the brain lab rather than a brain lab. 
because it'll be easier to get a foothold in a, in a very competitive field. There aren't that many people doing that. But you love it. It's I not, do I mean, love it, you, sure. You've been doing it all this yeah. time. But that it, it came about kind of by accident. Yeah, well, that's that's sort of the the purpose of what you said. Take time to daydream, and you'll get organized. Questions, ma'am. Is there some way to strengthen certain modes that you might be having trouble with? I feel like I can't filter, so I'm weak in the salient mode. So, is there some way to strengthen different modes of your of your brain's operation? Well, the way to strengthen the um, daydreaming mode is to really promise yourself that you'll spend a certain amount of time every day entering that mode. And, and for, getting in that mode is, is, you know, for different people, it's different things. Uh, for me, it's a single malt scotch at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, you know, in a quiet environment, you know, preferably on a beach somewhere. Uh, but for others, it's listening to music or um, going to a concert, reading a book. Uh, going for a walk in, in nature is very effective for, for many, many people. The walk in nature somehow automatically triggers this daydreaming mode for evolutionary reasons we don't fully understand. The stay on task mode, I mean, the trick there is you have to trick yourself. You have to turn off your internets, unplug the cable, turn off the wireless, and give yourself an hour or two without the, turn off the cell phone, give yourself an hour or two without a distraction. Now, you mentioned in particular the saliency network, um, the, meaning that you feel that you're not, uh, the, the attentional filter isn't often pulling you from things that it needs to and that you're... Or even to the point of feeling panicky. You don't feel panicky enough? No, I feel panicky when there's too much... Ah, okay, too panicky. Yeah. Well, um, I think... I think that's probably, I don't know you and uh, we've just met, but um, in, in a lot of people who feel this sense of panic, it's because um, they feel stressed out and stress is driven by the stress hormone cortisol and anything you can do to reduce cortisol is helpful. Exercise is one way to do it because you literally burn it off. Uh, eating well, um, and then trying to arrange your life in a way that um, you're not stressed out. I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about what super successful people do. HSPs. Highly successful people, right. Uh, what they do to stay uh, stress-free. I mean, these are the leaders of some of the biggest companies and military and governmental organizations who took the time to talk with me uh, and pass on their advice for the book, as well as artists and, and scientists. And um, what all of them share is that they prioritize their lives and their, their days. They, they figure out what, what needs to get done, typically by writing it down somewhere, and then they sort or resort or, or you know, get these things in some kind of order so that when the, day, when the end of the workday comes, they know that the most important things got done. Uh, and it's, it's much easier to feel relief from stress when you can say, yeah, I got, this was a good day's work, I got done what I needed. I didn't get done everything that, that, that I wanted to, I didn't get done everything that's on my plate, but I got enough done. All right, we got time. We have time for one more. And also, do me a favor, I'm going to give you permission. Take our picture, some of you, so, and then tag us on Facebook because I want to, uh, I want to document this. Sir? Or as we say at Oregon, you want to document it. I want to document it. <laughs> Ba-boom. <laughs> He's from the U of O, too. So with information, we talk about, you know, we take in the information that counters to say that's a door. But 
What's going on with our brains to create patterns? And they seem to be getting more elaborate. We're creating more patterns of more, that are more elaborate with more technology. Um, the world is very uh, disorganized and chaotic. And so we evolved brain mechanisms to try and um, extract order and regularity from a chaotic world. Uh, sometimes that leads to superstition. Uh, sometimes it leads to science. And um, the line between them uh, can appear blurry from afar, but I think education and training can help one to distinguish something that's uh, replicable and, and predictable uh, from something that's spurious uh, and superstitious. Um, I hope that answers the question. All right. Um, you, you, talk a lot about, you talk a lot about junk drawers in this book, but you also talk about the, the index card as a way of uh, reducing that stress that, that you were talking about. What, what's the value of the index card, and how do, how do the HSPs of this world use it? I was struck by how many people, um, even in high-tech environments, uh, write things down. Uh, if you read her uh, memoir, Sheryl Sandberg of uh, Facebook, the chief operating officer says that she carries a notebook around, and in Silicon Valley it's like, she feels like she's got a, a chisel and a stone tablet <laughs> and that people mock her, but she finds it uh, to be very helpful. And a number of people that I've encountered uh, write things down in notebooks or on index cards. Uh, it turns out that the act of writing things down as opposed to typing them uh, causes them to become more deeply encoded in memory uh, because of the the neural processes involved in writing longhand uh, or cursive. Uh, and what a lot of people like about the index cards is that if you use them as a to-do list and you put one item on each card, it's relatively easy to go through them and say, oh, oh, this, this one, no, this is more important now, I'm gonna put this at the top. Oh, and this one's less important, I'm gonna put this in the back. And um, some of the systems that people have is they'll have a to-do list on some cards and then they do what the efficiency guru, David Allen, calls the mind-clearing exercise. Once a day, twice a day, you know, but at regular intervals, you just stop and you write down all the chatter that's in your head on a separate set of cards. Some of them are going to become to-do items, uh, but others are not to-do items. They're just things that, you know, thoughts you have. And once you get them out of your head, they're no longer nagging you and you can get on with, with being more focused. And not in the junk drawer. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Come, uh, come see us at Town Hall, by the way, and uh, Daniel Levitin has a website so you can read more about all this and his work. Thank you, folks. <laughs>